I have a list now that is about 248 of red books. And then I'd say 20 or so that I'm still maybe working on or maybe abandoning. (laughs) Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. I'm excited about today's guest, Daniel Avola. You will hear more about him in a moment, but I'll tell you, when we got his submission here at What Should I Read Next HQ, we liked how some of his favorites were new to the show. As in, though they're older titles that have been out a while, we hadn't talked about them here before. And I was excited about the direction that conversation could go. Something else we do at What Should I Read Next HQ is talk over how to help more readers find our show, and we peruse your Instagram comments and Apple Podcast reviews. Those social media posts and comments do help us grow our audience, which is a good thing for a podcast. This recent review from Mrs. Seaver caught our eye. She called it Tuesday mornings, and she said, I wake up every Tuesday checking my podcast lineup for the day, searching for what should I read next. The show is like sitting with a couple of friends talking about books and much more. The show is relaxing, jovial, and great entertainment to start the day. My reading and the quality of my reading has exploded. Thank you, Mrs. Seaver, for that five-star review. Those short reviews go a long way when it comes to spreading the word that book lovers in the know should know about our show. And your reviews also help keep those algorithms for the major podcast platforms happy. And look, we may not love that about podcasting, but it's still important. If you could take two minutes to leave a short and sweet review on Apple Podcasts, the kind of thing you tell your friend by text or over coffee, just short, casual, we would be so grateful. It does not cost you a dime and it truly makes a difference. On behalf of myself and my team, thank you so much, and happy listening. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? (laughs) You get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie, and we're the hosts of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser-known figures, for instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a mindful moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment.
Now for today's conversation, I am talking to Daniel Avola, who is coming to us from his local Chicago library. Daniel was an early reader who often borrowed from his older brother's assigned reading list, and fortunately, he was not dissuaded by these early efforts with the classics. His love of reading grew as he did. Daniel knows there are plenty of classics and titles he's previously identified as must-read that he still would like to check off his list someday, or at least he's pretty sure he would. You will hear about that in a minute. But lately, he's been much more interested in discovering new-to-him voices that leave him so excited he cannot stop talking about their books. Recent discoveries like Katie Kitamura, Sandra Cisneros, uh, Lila Slamami. We're also touching today on his longtime love of one genre that he fell in love with early and has remained close to his heart as a proud Chicagoan ever since, and that is true crime. I'm excited to chat with Daniel about how his reading tastes have evolved and what that means for right now. I also will put some new-to-him titles in his hands so he can continue his journey of discovery and excitement. Let's get to it. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, Anne. Oh, I'm excited to talk today. Daniel, we were so intrigued by your submission. I'm excited to talk about your books that I think are off the beaten path. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I try to have some breadth. So some may be newer or some may be more familiar. Happy to hear it. We're going to get all into that today. And as someone who used to live in Chicagoland and has fond memories, I'm happy to talk to a Chicagoan. So Daniel, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. I am a former and possibly future reading, writing, and social studies teacher. I've worked for the past six years with Chicago Public Schools, and uh, I just kind of enjoy seeing people read something new and read something interesting that kind of sparks something in them. And I really enjoy creative writing and the creative writing process, letting kids kind of like explore whatever they want and letting them uh, build these worlds and characters. It's been really fun to do that and see that with my students. Oh, that sounds so cool. And it's always good to hear teachers talk about how they're excited to see passion being ignited and stoked in the students that they are teaching. Daniel, you mentioned your kids' passion. What are the things that you get real excited about? I enjoy, you know, those same things, reading, writing, and history, but when I'm not being so, like, studious, uh, I do enjoy, like, going out. Chicago's got so much to offer, uh, whether it's professional sports or the parks. We have so many big, beautiful parks, and you can get to all of them from trains or buses or walking or riding your bike. So it's really accessible. There's a lot of things to do. All right. You got to tell our Chicago area listeners and those who visited your wonderful city a favorite park. Oh, you're putting me on the spot. (laughs) A favorite park, not your most ever favorite park. Okay. So I'll have to go with Lincoln Park because it's the biggest and uh, the longest. It goes from downtown, the the north edges of downtown, all the way north, almost to Evanston. And it kind of segues into that next point. We have a beach in the middle of the country. We have a huge, long stretch of Lake Michigan coastline. And the Great Lakes are so great that uh, you almost feel like you're at a real beach. But I don't like going to the beach beach. I don't like going to the sandy beach. I like going, I call them the rocks. It's just kind of like a concrete 
where the city meets the water or where the water was stopped by the city rather. And you could jump off and do some flips and you're not supposed to dive because there are rocks at the bottom there, but you could kind of get away with it. But jumping in and (laughs) running along the trail and riding your bike along the trail and jumping in when you get too hot and coming back out, just laying there, there's less bugs, there's less people, you can bring a book, and it's just really a great time. Dan, I love where I live, but I'm experiencing some major lake envy right now. (laughs) As great as Chicago is. You know, I've lived here my whole life. So getting out is just as important as being a tourist in your own city. Something that I've discovered that I really enjoy is going to different places around the world and around the country. Uh, Some of my highlights, I'd say, were Tel Aviv, Israel. It was amazing. It was really a 24-hour city. It was a party nonstop. And then you contrast that with Jerusalem, where I stayed in the old city for four days or so. And it's a short bus ride away from Tel Aviv, and it's a completely different world. It's like you're stepping back in time. You have the different quarters of the city, and there are different personalities and cultures in each of those just butted up against one another and melding. And it's really an incredible place. But uh, I'd say if you're going to Israel, spend some extra time in Tel Aviv because it is a party and it is really a great time. That's fascinating to hear. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. So Israel was great. And then I would also say um, Portugal, the southern coast of Portugal, the Algarve, was one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Oh, I'd love to go to Portugal. And I went to Madeira Island, which is called the Mm -hmm. Garden Island. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, a whole nother world as well, but it was just kind of too small for me. So coming back to continental Europe and going to the Algarve to end a nice summer vacation was really incredible. And some of the pictures I still use from five years ago because I loved it so much. Oh, that's very cool. Dan, do you think about armchair travel when you're choosing what to read next? Is locale something you keep an eye out for when you're choosing your books? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Sometimes I'll run into a place or I'll come across an article about someone or something in a specific place and I'll have to kind of dive into it. But I will say there it's hidden myths. So location is a factor, but not the only factor. Yes. That makes sense to me. Dan, tell me more about your reading life. When did you fall in love with reading? So I've always been a big reader, Uh, started off with the typical children's books, I suppose, you know, and in middle school, I'd say, is when the Harry Potter craze took off. And I was definitely a part of that. I wasn't standing in line and dressing up to go to movies and get the latest book, but I would pre-order the books. And then as soon as they come out, I would read them all night until the dawn Uh, And then I would fall asleep at eight, nine in the morning, wake back up and start reading it again. So I've definitely always been a big reader. But then I'd say my second year of college, I took a semester off. I moved back to Chicago after spending some time at Indiana University and I started working again and I was missing something. So I talked with some friends and I have a friend who completed his studies at um, IU. 
And he introduced me to Soren Kierkegaard and Jean-Paul Sartre. And those are heavy hitters. And so I kind of started reading that. And I thought to myself, oh, maybe I can do this college thing. Maybe it's not as complicated or as complicated as I'm making it. So um, I guess my friend Ken kind of started me reading the way I do now. If I could sum up how I read nowadays, it's typically one nonfiction and one fiction book at the same time. So I kind of will alternate those. All right. Very cool. The thing I really want to hear about is the list of 200 plus books. I don't exactly know when this started. It was sometime around the time my friend Ken gave me those two books. Do you remember a website called StumbleUpon? Oh my gosh. Yes. That is a throwback. Yeah. And you would just click the button and it would take you to a random web page. Well, I had put in books and other things like that, you know, as my interests. And I came across a list of, I think, 200 books that was called the 200 books every man should read before he dies. Something like that. You know, one of these listicles that you click on and then you scroll through. I had um, the idea that, okay, I'll take this as an assignment. And so I wrote down the 200 books and over the years I compiled a lot of them. And I have a list now that is about 248 of red books. And then I'd say 20 or so that I'm still maybe working on or maybe abandoning. (laughs) (laughs) Is that part of our mission today? Yeah. I mean, some insight or just some like, uh, I don't know, maybe permission to say you don't have to read that would be kind of nice to hear. All right. Well, Dan, maybe this will be more meaningful later in the episode, but you don't have to read that. Uh, Thank you. Okay. So I can cut (laughs) some of these off the list. (laughs) You know, there are definitely situations I have in my life where I feel like present Anne has to cash the checks that past Anne wrote. Like there's no way out. But this reading list, you are not in that kind of situation. You are the boss of your present day reading life. Now, if you create a curricula for your students and said, we're going to read all these books together, yeah, then I'd say, Dan, you got to read these books. Like, you do actually have to cash those checks, but that's not the situation. This is for you and your reading life for your personal reasons. And maybe we'll um, interrogate those a little bit and clarify those today, too. So that'll help you decide which to cut. But yeah, you you don't need to read those books. And I haven't even added, I don't think I have added the most of the books that we've read for class. So a lot of like the YA or some of those chapter books, Percy Jackson and stuff, I don't know mm-hmm. if they've made the list. They may have, mostly not. I don't have like Hop on Pop on the list. <laughs> that would get to be a really long list really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> so I can appreciate that. All right, Dan, so I think something that we want to do, especially based on our you know chatting before we hit record, friends, is help you get a better sense of what what it is you're looking for, what it is you love. Um, you have these books you know you love, but I think, tell me if I'm recapturing this correctly, that you're not necessarily always sure why you love the books you love. So I hope we can do that today. Does that sound like it would be helpful? Yeah. Sometimes it's hard to quite put my finger on what it is that 
I can kind of explain what draws me to them, but sometimes I'm surprised by a book. I'm surprised by an author. And surprises are good, but also they can be kind of baffling when something feels out of step with the rest of what we know ourselves to like. So, okay, well, I'm excited to do this. How did you choose the books we're going to talk about today? So I have a way of organizing my list where if I really liked the book, I bold it. So I went through my list and then I went through my Goodreads list and saw what was the recent five stars. And that's kind of how I chose them. But I also picked ones that just popped into my head that I knew that there was something about them that is making it jump out at me. Okay. So a little bit gut instincts and a little bit data. I like it. Dan, tell me about the first book you love. Okay. The first one that I chose was The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov. I don't know how I came across this book. It probably was on that first list. I'm laughing because it's always so great to hear how you came across a book you love. But okay, on the first list. Yeah, I have no idea. But it was probably on that first list of 200. And I didn't know what to expect. I saw that there was a cat with a gun on the cover. And I started reading it. And right away, it kind of hooked me. You're in, I think it's Gorky Park in Moscow. There's a man sitting on a bench. Another man approaches him. Some strange person gets run over by a train. And then there's like a tall man. And everything kind of goes to hell from there, literally, because the person you meet is (laughs) the devil. Oh, you beat me to it. (laughs) So it, it weaves in all of the controversial things that I enjoy, politics, religion, And it weaves it into a really interesting story that kind of goes forwards and backwards. It takes you to the past, but it also takes you to the present at that time. And when you learn about the author, you see that he was at sometimes, you know, lauded as a Soviet author and playwright. And then he was also persecuted. Dan, how long ago did you read this? That was probably back in 2015 or so. Okay. So it's a book that stuck with you for a number of years now. Yeah. And on YouTube, there is a like 10-part Russian straight-to-TV series. That is the book. And I think what stuck with me the most is the devil's ball. Like that idea of the devil's ball. He got all these terrible people together and he showed off Margarita as like the queen of hell. And it was really an evocative scene in the book. And then kind of seeing it in the movie, for some reason, those images like stick with me. The whole motif of that was really something I enjoyed. And I'm thinking, so you mentioned seeing the cover of the book, which is a cat with a gun. Like I'm thinking that touch of the absurd, like the hint that it would be political. Is it fair to say they didn't put you off or that they pulled you in? Definitely pulled me in. So I didn't know anything about the book when I first started it. And then as soon as it got started, I could see the political satire, but just all of the themes, you know, the theme of Pontius Pilate, uh, the theme of political absurdism of Stalinism at the time was really, really interesting. When they went to the shop and then 
everybody got everything they wanted. And as soon as they walked outside the store, everybody was naked. There was, they didn't have any of those things that they had just bought. There was just so many clever and really, really funny ways of satirizing the climate that Bulgakov was living in, as well as kind of taking that other view of the religious story as well, of the Christ story as well. And, you know, he really centered Pontius Pilate. And that was just um, a perspective that I wasn't used to, that I enjoyed. So bizarre for a reason, dark humor, these are things that work for you. Yes. And unexpected interpretations. Okay. Interesting. Dan, tell me about another book you love. Another book I chose was Oryx and Crake by Margaret Atwood. And really, it's the whole Mad Adam trilogy. And this is another one, not sure where it came from, not sure exactly how I picked it up, but I loved it right away. It had a lot of those same themes of absurdity. In this case, there is the future instead of the past. And in the future, it is all of our worst vices, all of our worst guilty pleasures, all of our worst habits are really defined and amplified. And then you have, in this case, some younger people. I think it's college, you know, high school age, college age, and then they grow. And it's being told in the past tense, so it's somebody remembering things. It was really interesting, and it got me thinking about, I guess, sort of where we're headed or where we could be headed. It's this uh, dystopian future that isn't so far off, but at the same time, it has these other elements of friendship and betrayal, uh, romance and intellect. You know, these are intelligent people. They are studying for different things, but they have different personalities. One is a quieter, more techie person. And then you have the main character who is just kind of like a loafer. You know, he's kind of just getting by and he's doing everything right, but he's not really doing anything exceptionally well. And he ends up being the hero. So, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, he's failing up, I say. And it turns out he's not failing at all. He might be the most sane one of them all. So I really enjoyed kind of the the play there between everything around you is going wrong and by kind of not doing anything, you are doing the right thing. That's a very interesting way to describe that book. And Dan, what did you choose for your third favorite? Okay, my third favorite is a recent one that I picked up in a little free library outside of somebody's house when I was walking my dog. (laughs) I love it. It is American Gods by Neil Gaiman. And this book, I didn't know what to expect going into it. It was very, very fun. To me, it it reads like a grown-up Percy Jackson with some foul language and some more adult situations, but it still has those elements of mythology. And the writing was really good. I could see the artwork in my head. And it got me to want to watch the television show. I haven't watched it yet, but I know that there's an American Gods TV show that has a couple of seasons. And I'm looking forward to watching that now that I read this book, because I really enjoyed it. It was very fun. Dan, 
I still haven't read this one. I've read a fair amount of Neil Gaiman, but I haven't read this one. I don't know. Like, not every book is for every reader. But if you wanted to sell me on it, what would you say? Well, I would say just that it's a grown-up Percy Jackson. It's about a man, and he is um, Shadow. So he is a shadowy figure, but Shadow is his name. And he uh, sprung from jail early because of a tragedy, and he meets a mysterious person on the plane ride home. He ditches the plane, and then when he's at a roadside restaurant, uh, the man appears next to him, and he offers him a job. And so he kind of starts working for this mysterious man. All these different characters come into play. And it really just draws on different mythologies in America. And there's background where you find out how various customs, cultures, gods came to the United States. And then they are living, breathing people. They are real people, these gods. And so you kind of see how they all live differently around the country. It's really interesting. It's kind of anticlimactic, not to dissuade you from reading it. I found it a little bit anticlimactic. It wouldn't get five stars for me, but I did really enjoy the style. I thought the the writing was excellent. It was just a fun story to read. You had me at grown-up Percy Jackson. That's a great description. Dan, what have you been reading lately? So I'm reading three novels by Naguib Mahfouz, uh-huh. who is an older Egyptian writer. He won the Nobel Prize. This kind of goes to that have-to-read sort of situation. This is somebody who I came across, and I read that he was very influential, and he's you know quintessential Egyptian writer. And so I started reading him, and he didn't hook me right away. And so I started reading a nonfiction book, to pair with my fiction, and that is Under the Banner of Heaven by John Krakauer. Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of reading those two simultaneously right now. Dan, what are you looking for in your reading life right now? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to check off lists. I know that I've, we've talked about lists, and I have, I've had a list, and I still make lists, and I'll continue to make lists of what I've read, but I don't want to have to read things anymore. I don't want to have to read things just because they're canonical or just because they're on a list of you should read these before you die. I found that a lot of the ones that I have waited for, I don't know if I'll ever get into them because I don't think they're drawing me in. And it's been over five years, you know, it's almost 10 years now that I've kept this list and they've been on the list since the beginning. So I don't know if I'll ever get to them. Um, but I do enjoy new authors. I enjoy new perspectives. I like reading and listening to people who are taking me to new places that I haven't been before, new situations, new personalities, new cultures, customs, traditions, places. Those are what I'm looking for. Dan, I think because it factored so largely into your submission, you have to tell me a little about your love of true crime. Ah, yes. So I haven't talked about that much simply because um, I have fallen away from it. But especially as a child growing up, I was really captured by the idea of crime and organized crime. My father is an immigrant from Sicily, and so there's this undertone of the mafia. Plus, I live in Chicago, so we have underground history with Al Capone and all these people that is 
in movies, it's in the air. You know, we have this underground culture in Chicago that um, you can get caught up in and there's plenty to read about. And once you start digging and diving into it, you realize that, you know, Al Capone is a main character, but he probably isn't the most interesting person that there is. The people in the 70s, the people in the 60s, these low-key gangsters are more sophisticated and more interesting. So I read a lot of crime, true crime stories, particularly around organized crime. And I just got a few books, actually, about uh, the situation in the 90s and in the 80s with the Vatican Bank and the Propaganda Due Masonic Lodge in Italy. And there's a Chicago connection there as well with the um, president of the Vatican Bank being an archbishop from Cicero. And he was kind of John Paul II's right-hand man. And there's a lot of intrigue and suspicion that surrounds that story. So I'll dive into those maybe in the fall when it gets a little bit darker and drearier and colder. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds great. Dan, thank you for telling me what you're on the hunt for right now. And thank you for that perspective on true crime and what it means to you, what it's meant to you in the past. Am I imagining a wistfulness for the genre that you'd love to find something great in it? Or is that not really there? Am I truly hearing that? Well, I'm open to it. It's not like I'm opposed to reading true crime anymore, but I have found like Under the Banner of Heaven arguably is a true crime story. So I'm definitely still open to it. But um, I'm probably gearing away from the organized crime or at least like the Italian-American mafia type crime stories. And I'm also a little bit leery of organized crime and these true crime stories because you aren't always sure if you're getting a factual picture. There's a lot of hearsay. There's a lot of speculation. And so you end up thinking one way. And there's arguments to be made the opposite. So mm, I'm open to reading it, but I wouldn't say that it is something that is like a priority. But then again, I am reading a true crime story right now, and I do have like two or three queued up. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. You are. Okay. I'm going to note that. Dan, of the books you enjoyed, let's recap. You Loved The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulkakov, Orcs and Crake by Margaret Atwood, and American Gods by Neil Gaiman. And currently, you're reading three novels by Nagib Mahfouz and Under the Banner of Heaven by John Krakauer. And you want to figure out what you like and get off that list. Dan, you said that you didn't feel like you maybe really understood what you liked or why you liked what you liked, but... I heard a lot of consistency in your themes. You're drawn to the weird and the unusual. You're drawn to the kinds of stories that I think it never would have occurred to you to write. In fact, I'm wondering if maybe it's your perspective as a writer that draws you towards these like weird and thought-provoking works. You want to weigh in there? I could see that. You know, I think thematically there are some consistencies. I do like uh, the weird and the wonderful and the unique different perspectives. But yeah, I do kind of like a 
I like an author who embeds themselves in their work. So some of these authors, you kind of know their point of view and you know where they stand after you read them, but it's not glaringly obvious. You know, it's underneath, it's in between the lines. Like with Bulgakov, you know, you see that satirism of Stalinism. With Welbeck, you see that disinterest in French politics, even though those are the you know key factors of the book. Those are underneath, like those are undertones. With Margaret Atwood, she has a lot to say about the future in Oryx and Crake, um, one way or the other. Same with all of her other novels. Like I'm thinking of um, Handmaid's Tale, right? Like there's a lot of different themes in there, but they are not expounded on, let's say. Like they are kind of in the background and you get a feel for the author through the surroundings, through the context. Mm-hmm. Now that's up for you to decide and explore further. Like what does your identity as a writer mean for your reading life? But I just want to float that for you as a possibility. And also something that we've consistently seen is that you appreciate a touch of the absurd. You like when political themes are woven through or make the novel. And you really enjoy satire and dark humor. So we're going to keep all those things in mind as we move forward. And I'm hoping to give you some picks that will already be familiar and maybe a pick or two that is off the beaten path, because that is a place that you like to go. I want to start with one that has been everywhere, but I think it could be just right for you. And that is a book by George Saunders, a writing book called mm-hmm. A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, in which four Russians give a masterclass on writing, reading, and life. Is this a book you're familiar with or that you've read? No. I am familiar with George Saunders just from the New Yorker podcasts. Which I hear are good, but I've never listened to. He has interested me. And I know that he is a MFA professor. So if we want to go back to that theme of writing, I'm sure there's quite a bit to learn from reading him. So that sounds pretty good. Oh, we do. I think you'd like Saunders in general. I think his essay collection, 10th of December, has often that touch of the absurd, the unexpected, the what on earth is happening. I mean, very realistic. And also, there's often just a hint of the bazaar. And Lincoln and the Bardo is so inventive and strange. You're reading this thinking, one, this is brilliant. And two, how do you come up with this stuff, George Saunders? Mm -hmm. But I like this book for you. I would encourage you just to pop online, like to the publisher's website and read his opening words. And what he says is, for 20 years, he's been teaching a class in the 19th century Russian short story and translation at Syracuse University. And he talks about winnowing down an applicant pool of six and 700 students to six promising young writers wow. and what he's trying to teach them in the class. And it's really interesting. He says, like, if, if you're one of the students selected for this class, you can write. But my goal with this class is to help you really hone your voice and learn how to write the things that only you can write and really develop an, a distinctive style. And as a reader and writer, I think it's really fascinating that the method he's using to do this is look at some very old Russian short stories. And there's four authors he focuses on, like he says in the subtitle, they are Chekhov, Gogol, Turgenev, and Tolstoy. And you loved Bulkakov for many of the same elements that appear in these stories. So what he says is that he didn't choose the most representative or the best short stories necessarily. He was trying 
to elevate and highlight the ones that he loved to teach and that students loved to talk about. So this is his masterclass in book form. It does feel very much like you're sitting in on the college seminar. I will say the audiobook is particularly great because that really does feel like a college seminar. You have a well-known figure like Nick Offerman or Renee Elise Goldberry read you the Russian short story, and then you hear Saunders expound on it in detail. So he said that this book is his attempt to put what some of his students and Saunders have discovered together over the years and kind of offer you a version of that class. So I think you'll enjoy reading the stories themselves and also reading the commentary and then knowing you and what you're interested in. I think you might then go back and read the stories again. And I think this could be a really interesting and gratifying reading experience for you. But what do you think, Dan? That's what matters here. I'm very intrigued. I like it a lot that he chose different authors because you could kind of jump around and see the different um, similarities and differences between them. I also have to say I do have like a soft spot for European literature and Russian literature is a whole nother ballgame. It's great and expansive and dark and it's hard to wrap up into a, a nice sentence, but it's typically excellent. And reading some of the masters from that is something that definitely appeals to me. Okay. Dan, I'm going to try to do true crime. So I'm aware that you have read a lot of stuff because you have had an interest for a long time, but you've dropped a couple mentions that made me want to make sure that this book is on your radar. And it's a 2008, I almost said novel because that reads like one, but it's a 2008 nonfiction account of The Monster of Florence by Douglas J. Preston and Mario Spezzi. Is this a book you know? No. Oh, I'm so excited to hear that. So we've talked about Douglas J. Preston on this podcast before. He has co-authored thrillers with Lincoln Child. He's also the author of The Lost City of the Monkey God, which I know has been, I think, a book I recommended on What Should I Read Next. We will find that in our archives and share that in the show notes. The backstory here is that Preston was working on a mystery and he moved to Florence to research that book so he could do it there in the country. Also, I don't know if we talked about this, but you have a personal collection with Italy. It's a place that means a lot to you and a place you'd like to visit. That is definitely rattling around in my mind. Spezzi was an Italian journalist. So what happens is that Preston moved to Italy and kind of fell headlong into the rabbit hole of an ongoing investigation about a serial killer known as the Monster of Florence, who murdered eight couples between 1968 and 1985 at various locations, often called Lover's Lanes in the press, across Tuscany. So Preston moves to Florence, and he founds out that one of those double homicides occurred right next to the farmhouse he had just moved into with his family in the olive grove, like right there. So he starts investigating and digs in. And at a certain point, he teams up with Spetsy, and they become very involved in this story. Like at a certain point, I think Preston is accused of tampering with evidence. I think Spetsy is actually considered as the possible perpetrator by the police for a short period of time. But uh, this crime still has not been solved. But this is their deep dive into the killer himself, the ongoing, I think, failed investigation, and what it all means. This is a classic in the genre, pointed to again and again as a narrative nonfiction that is impeccably done and that really stands the test of time, which at this point is only 15 years, but I expect people to be reading it for at least another 15 more. How does that sound to you? I think you sold it 
very well. It seems like uh, an American crime story set in Italy because you don't typically hear about serial killers <laughs> in other parts of the world. We seem to have a uh, premium on that. So uh, that's something that is intriguing right off the bat. And then also, I would say it reminds me a little bit of Gamora, where you have a journalist who kind of gets wrapped up in the world. Um, at the beginning of Gamora, I remember the author kind of befriending some of these people in the port of Naples. And even while I might not be like super gung-ho about the true crime thing, you found a great way to tie it into a lot of my interests with Italy in particular, but also, you know, travel and Europe and kind of putting this typical story in a not so typical, much more interesting place. Sounds great. I'm glad to hear it. And I want to finish with a weird one, if you're good with that. Love it. Okay, we have Red Pill by Hari Kunsru. Have you read this one? I have not. Okay, wonderful. I'm happy to hear it. It came out in 2020, so a lot of books flew under the radar in 2020 for reasons we are well aware of. Mm -hmm. This is a book about a writer, Dan. So there is a Brooklyn writer who is stressed out by American politics. We never learn his name, even though he's telling us this story in the first person. I love that. And it's set in roughly the present day, like where real events actually do play into the story. Because he is so taxed and weary of what is happening in the U.S., he decides to accept a position at a Berlin writer's residency, thinking he will get away to Germany. This will be the escape he desperately needs. But instead, it's like stepping off a cliff for him. For starters, just some basics. He's an introvert who needs time to himself, but the rules of the residency mean he has to work in close proximity to other writers. So this drives him to start binge-watching a cop show as an escape. But that cop show has a very depressing worldview, and it does not do good things for his mental health. He's already inclined after his time in the U.S. and his time at the residency to have a pernicious worldview, and his paranoia is increasing. And this show just stokes them. And weirdly, in time, the narrator, the unnamed Brooklyn writer, crosses paths with the creator of this cop show he's been binge-watching, who is charming and super racist. And as the narrator, who is um, losing his grip on reality at this point, tries to figure out more about the man behind the show, it does even worse things for his mental health and his accurate perception of what's happening around him. And in the meantime, he's well aware that a presidential election in the U.S. is drawing near, and he's keeping an eye on that, which is not doing good things for him either. But this is his descent into, well, I'll tell you that I remember the critical reviews called it things like a nightmarish allegory and a dark tale of fear and injustice. And it's about books and writing and social media and their purpose. And what kind of burden do the creators bear? What kind of burden do the consumers bear? This has been called Kafka-esque. And we have talked about Russia today. There's an interesting um, side plot that you may decide does or doesn't belong in this story. But because of some historical references that are made in that side plot, that relate to Stalin's Russia, I, I think that's going to catch your attention as well. So this is bizarre and weird and dark and unsettling, which those adjectives are going to send some readers running. But how does it sound to you? I'm really impressed. I'm really impressed by all of your choices. This latest one, Red Pill, it sounds again like something right up my alley. We have historical allegories. We have like a, a political context in the background. 
we have a stressed out um, American <laughs> trying to escape <laughs> it all. It sounds very familiar. It sounds very relatable. And then you go into the absurd. Then you go into like that, that dark, crazy, wild, weird place where reality and and the imagination or, you know, your own head kind of meld together. And I love that. I love that place where like, is this real? Is this not real? Am I doing the right thing? Am I not doing the right thing? Am I involved in this case or am I just a witness to it? Um, You kind of get all of those things. That's really what I enjoy reading. Just kind of like this, I don't know where we're going and I don't know what's going to happen next. And something awful happened next to me and what comes around the corner. So I really, really like it. Sounds great. Well, I'm glad to hear they sound promising. Of course, only you can decide if they're actually right for you. I'd be so curious to hear what you think. And Dan, I really wish you well as you reflect about like the things we talked about today, where you are in your reading life right now, and what books do and don't belong on that list you've been keeping for a long time. Good luck with that. Well, I have some new ones to add now. Oh, I'm happy to hear it. Dan, we covered a lot of ground today, but the three titles we arrived at were A Swim in a Pond in the Rain by George Saunders, The Monster of Florence by Douglas J. Preston and Mario Spezzi, and Red Pill by Hari Kunsru. Of those three books, what do you think you'll pick up next? Well, I think I got to start with the Hari Kunsru. It sounds like something right up my alley for summer. Sounds like something that I could jump into right away and probably finish in a week or so. Well, I'm excited to hear it. Dan, thanks so much for talking books with me today. I really enjoyed this. Thank you, Anne. Thanks for having me on and thanks for giving me these great suggestions. Hey, readers. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Daniel and I'd love to hear what you think he should read next. Leave your recommendations for Daniel and check out our full list of titles we talked about today at what should I read next podcast.com. Make sure you're following along in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram for more bookish goodness. You will find our show's page at what should I read next. And my personal account is at Ann Bogle. That's Ann with an E. E is in books. O-G-E-L. If you don't get our newsletter, it's free. It's easy to sign up. If you enter your email twice, it's fine. We'll only email you once. Go to what should I read next podcast.com slash newsletter to get our updates. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What should I read next is created each week by Will Bogle, Holly Wilkachewski, and Studio D Podcast Productions. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Roca said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.